whole world. And so rich countries, poor countries alike, all of a sudden there was a spike in, in hunger. Now, uh, when the pandemic then formally ended, what happened is the hunger crisis actually got worse. The reason is because there were temporary measures and social programs that were put in place during the pandemic to deal with a health crisis. This is things like universal school meals for uh, children, sometimes throughout the whole year, not just the academic year, um, direct cash payments to people supporting uh, local uh, food markets, local farmers markets. These programs were put in place uh, as temporary measures to deal with the pandemic and the food crisis of the pandemic. We have 30 and seconds, Michael. So what needs to be done is to turn those temporary programs into permanent programs. Otherwise, this global food crisis is only going to get worse. Michael Fakhri is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and a professor of law at the University of Oregon. That does it for today's program. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Sharif Abdelkadus, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaria Studio, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Hannah Elias. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, Dennis McCormick, Matt Ely, Anna Ozbeck, Emily Anderson, Buffy St. Marie Hernandez. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shake for Democracy Now! You are tuned into KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Friday, March 1st at 8 p.m., KBOO makes everything metal. It's the Metal March, a special benefit show for KBOO Community Radio, featuring 10 hours of brutality from your favorite KBOO metal programs, Oil for Kisses, the Metal Margin, The Last Hour, and Pandemonium, plus the return of former hosts of Heavy Metal Vomit Party. March 4th and support metal on KBOO. Text KBOO to 44321 or go to kboo.fm give to donate and tune in to the Metal March Marathon on KBOO. Friday, March 1st at 8 p.m. through Saturday, March 2nd at 6 a.m., metal takes over the airwaves for the Metal March Marathon. Only on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News... Oregon House Bill 4002 to recriminalize drugs passes the House. Alabama lawmakers vote to protect IVF in the state, and the Portland Timbers part ways with their newest jersey sponsor just days after their home opener. Good evening. This is the KBU Evening News for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. I'm Althea Billings. Oregon House lawmakers passed HB 4002 today, which would recriminalize the possession of drugs, undoing a critical part of Measure 110. The vote passed Thursday with 51 aye votes and 7 nays. Now it heads to the state Senate for approval. 
HB 4002 would make low-level possession of illicit drugs a misdemeanor, punishable by up to six months in jail. The bill would also expand access to medications to treat opioid withdrawal and pay for new behavioral health services, while also making it easier for prosecutors to seek harsh convictions from drug dealers. It's a compromised version of an earlier iteration. In an attempt to appease Republicans, Democratic lawmakers removed requirements that police must offer people alternatives to jail-like treatment. It was also conceived without the input of civil rights and racial justice groups, including Unite Oregon, the ACLU, Latino Network, and the Urban League of Portland, who opposed the bill. The racial and ethnic impact statement of the bill confirms that it will have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. It predicts about a 30% higher conviction rate for black Oregonians under the new law, meaning for the same charge, people of other racial groups would get lesser or no penalty at all. The state Senate is scheduled to have its first reading of the bill on Friday, March 1st. Alabama lawmakers passed a bill to protect in vitro fertilization, or IVF, just a week after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children and anyone who destroys them could be held liable for wrongful death. The court decision was immediately extremely controversial. The ruling was based on an 1872 law that allows families to sue for damages in the event of a wrongful death of a minor. The court held there was no exception in that law for frozen embryos. Medical experts warned that it would make the procedure much more expensive and create incredible liability for providers. In vitro fertilization is a series of medical procedures that can lead to pregnancy, and it's a treatment for infertility. Eggs are collected from someone's ovaries and fertilized by sperm in a lab. The state Supreme Court ruling would mean that parents couldn't opt to discard embryos, even for divorce or death. The State Medical Association wrote in a brief to the court that that would cause, quote, embryos to remain in cryogenic storage even after the couple who underwent the IVF treatment had died and potentially even after the couple's children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren have died, end quote. On Thursday, Alabama representatives passed a bill to give IVF providers civil and criminal immunity from prosecution and legal action. Fertility clinics paused IVF services last week after the ruling, since it said that Alabama residents who had their embryos destroyed could sue for wrongful death damages. Both houses of Alabama's state legislature have passed their own bills on the issue, but they'll both need to vote on a unified bill before it can be sent to the governor's desk for signature. The bills received major support from members of both parties. They don't answer the question of whether an embryo created by IVF should be treated as a child under Alabama law, which was a core question of the state Supreme Court ruling. The bill is on track for a full vote next Wednesday, where it's expected to pass and be signed by the governor. Nationally, polls show that a large majority of Americans from both parties favor access to IVF. A straight vote on a federal law to protect access to IVF written by Senator Tammy Duckworth was scuttled by a lone Republican objector earlier this week. Kentucky's Mitch McConnell says he'll step down as GOP Senate leader in November. Michigan's not-committed vote cost President Biden two delegates, and the Pentagon says reliance on stopgap spending bills hurts military readiness. With more on these stories, it's Catherine Carley with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back, hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation 
of leadership. Republican Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the longest-serving Senate leader ever, will serve out the last three years of his term, but will stop being minority leader in November. The 82-year-old has suffered health issues of late, but he's also come into conflict with the dominant figure in the party, former President Donald Trump. The Supreme Court will decide whether Trump is immune from prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election. The court scheduled arguments in late April and at the former president's request has put his March trial date on hold. Loyola law professor Jessica Levinson tells NBC she expects the high court will uphold an appellate court's rejection of immunity, but it's new legal territory. This is the type of case that the Supreme Court does look at. It's a big constitutional question. It's a matter of first impression because we've never been here before. Illinois has now become the third state to kick the former president off the ballot for leading an insurrection. Meanwhile, a New York appellate judge has refused to stop collection of the half-billion-dollar civil penalty while Trump appeals that ruling. And former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is calling on the Republican National Committee to bar the party from paying the former president's legal fees. More than one in eight Democrats in Michigan's primary voted uncommitted, enough to deny President Joe Biden two delegates. Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud says Biden's support for Israel's war in Gaza betrays the more than quarter million Arab Americans in his state. 2020, we're promised a president who is going to bring decency back to the White House, who led with humanity. And what we found since the events unfolded on October 7th is anything but. Organizers want Biden to call for a ceasefire. Robert McCall with the Council on American-Islamic Relations says now they're focused on next month's Minnesota and Washington state primaries. Our communities are organized. We're a political force in these states and other swing states. And we can tip the results in any election when it counts. Congressional leaders have reached a potential deal on six of 12 annual budget bills, pending approval by the House and Senate, along with another temporary spending stopgap. That would avoid a Friday government shutdown, keeping it open into next month. But Pentagon spokesperson Major General Pat Ryder says budgeting this way hurts national security. The fact is that this uncertainty undermines our military readiness and jeopardizes critical modernization efforts. Meanwhile, the leaders of two dozen European parliaments are urging Speaker Johnson to pass additional aid for Ukraine. And the New York legislature has approved new maps for the state's congressional districts, including several that could be very competitive this fall. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Governor Tina Kotek makes an exception. Portland's downtown Safeway and Plaid Pantry on 11th don't have to accept can and bottle returns for the next month. She says it's part of the 90-day fentanyl emergency that government officials have declared for Portland's central core. Oregon's bottle bill normally requires all retailers where bottled and canned beverages are sold to redeem them for a deposit. Kotek is using her emergency authority to suspend that, but only for Safeway and Plaid Pantry. The suspension is intended to cut off what officials see as the most readily available source of cash for fentanyl users, which is bottle and can returns. The area around Safeway and Plaid Pantry has become something of a hangout spot. Local tenants and elected leaders have pointed to their proximity to important Portland locations like the Art Museum, Portland State University, and the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall as critical problems for downtown to be able to attract visitors. All other retail locations that sell bottled and canned drinks are still required to exchange those for a deposit, and the exception for these Safeway and Plaid Pantry locations will lift on April 1st.
Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson says she'll try to delay a tax increase to fund preschool for all for one year. Vega-Peterson helped champion the measure in 2020 to help fund 11,000 free preschool slots by 2030. Right now, the tax to fund the service is at 1.5% on high-income earners, and it's set to increase to 2.3% in 2026. Now, Vega-Peterson says the county should push that increase back a year. She says economic modeling shows they have the funds they need to delay it one year, and the services won't be impacted. The delay would line up with the three-year tax increase moratorium that was proposed by Governor Tina Kotek last fall. In the first two years of Preschool for All, 1,200 free preschool slots have been created and funded, but it's been difficult to fully staff the teaching positions and build up enough infrastructure. County economic modeling shows a one-year delay on the tax increase will be fine for the program, but it also shows that if the county opts to never increase the tax, it wouldn't be funded fully and wouldn't recover for at least 15 years. A new plan from the Bureau of Land Management creates additional protections for 417,000 acres of land in southeastern Oregon. The new resource management plan has been in the making for more than a decade. KBU reporter Birdie has the details. The remote landscape of southeastern Oregon is receiving additional protections. The Bureau of Land Management has finalized its resource management plan for the southeast corner of the state. It includes protections for parts of the Owyhee and Malheur Rivers and canyonlands in the region. Michael O'Casey with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership says it's an exciting announcement that will protect this sensitive landscape from activities like surface development and road building. When that landscape is impacted, it's really hard to bring it back and restore it. And so it's really important to protect the places out there that are healthy and intact and resistant and resilient is a term that we use to stresses from climate change or whatever else. O'Casey says the plan still allows for traditional uses of the land, like hunting and fishing. The BLM's final resource management plan for the district covers 4.6 million acres of public land. O'Casey says the agency deliberated for years on this decision. This planning process was initiated in 2010, and so it's been 14 years in the making. The good news of that, even though it's been a really long time, was that there was really robust public comment process done throughout this. O'Casey says appointing the Southeast Oregon Resource Advisory Council in 2014 was an important part of public involvement. The council was made up of a wide variety of area locals, including grazing, energy, and conservation interests, who made recommendations for management in the region. For KBU News and the Oregon News Service, I'm Bertie. The Portland Timbers have cut ties with their latest jersey sponsor, Hillsborough-based Dabella Exteriors. Allegations emerged on Wednesday that the CEO, Donnie McMillan Jr., made unwanted sexual advances and sexually harassed at least three female employees. The Oregonian first reported the scandal based on a legal filing from a former employee of the company who said he was never paid what he was owed after being fired in 2022. That lawsuit doesn't accuse McMillan of sexual assault, but instead points out that the CEO owed settlements to the women who had accused him. The Timbers terminated DeBella as their jersey sponsor on February 23rd when they found out about the sexual harassment. All mention and images of DeBella have been scrubbed from the soccer team's online presence, and the same process is underway at Providence Park. 
The scandal comes as the Timbers are trying to mend their reputation related to sexual assault. Until recently, the Timbers and Thorns were owned by the same person, Merritt Paulson, who was found to have helped cover up sexual harassment and coercion of two Thorns players by a former coach. The Timbers also faced criticism for how they handled an alleged domestic violence incident involving one of their players in 2021. DeBella had just come on as a sponsor for the team this year, replacing Alaska Airlines. You are listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for the Global Citizen International Digest with Portland State Professor Emeritus Mel Gertov. At 6, it's Rose City Native Radio. At 6.30, a prayer for salmon. Then at 7, American Indian Airwaves. Tonight's weather will be windy and rainy with an overnight low of 38 degrees. Tomorrow will be similar, reaching a high temp of 47 with wind and rain in the forecast as well. Today in history, in 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American ever to win an Academy Award. The Kansas-born actress won an Oscar for her role as Mammy in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind. Prior to that film, McDaniel had starred in John Ford's Judge Priest in 1934 and The Little Colonel in 1935. The quote of the day comes from author Charles Glassman, who said, quote, Today I plan to take the leap. No matter that my heart beats a little fast, my knees feel a bit shaky, or my voice quivers. Today I plan to take the leap that will launch me on the right path. Revision in the euthanasia policy at the troubled Multnomah County Animal Shelter, MCAS, is raising alarm among local animal lovers and shelter volunteers. The Oregonian reports that the Department of Community Services, which oversees the shelter, created a completely new euthanasia policy from scratch in November. Previously, the shelter maintained a rule that clearly stated animals were not to be euthanized for a lack of space at the shelter. The new policy, which did not require approval from the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners, does not include that language and instead states that reasons for putting an animal down can consider, quote, available resources to manage or address the needs of the animal as well as lack of available placement opportunities. Many people are voicing concerns that the specific omissions in the wording of this new policy leave the door open for MCAS to euthanize healthy animals simply for space. Helen Chauncey, a longtime MCAS volunteer, told the Oregonian, quote, I would be absolutely thrilled for them to say we don't euthanize for space, but they've clearly removed that statement in the policy, so my index of suspicion says yes, they will euthanize for space, end quote. Margie Bradway is the director of the Department of Community Services, which oversees MCAS. She maintains that while the shelter will never put a healthy animal to sleep to make room for incoming pets, the new policy was written to help better define what it means for an animal to be considered dangerous or unhealthy. She also acknowledged that given the current low adoption rates and high numbers of pet surrenders, animals are spending longer in the shelter. This can cause them to deteriorate mentally and physically, making them candidates for euthanasia. 
Revising the animal shelter's euthanasia policy is part of the lengthy list of recommendations made for MCAS as a result of a nine-month review of the shelter ordered by County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson last year. The review was the result of ongoing issues at MCAS, which came to a head when the shelter had to close for a week in December of 2023 due to overcrowding and lack of staff. Problems at the county animal shelter have been well documented since 2008 and include substandard animal care, neglect, understaffing, mismanagement, and lack of accountability. MCAS, which put down 486 dogs and cats in 2023, has also been routinely criticized for a lack of proper record keeping and transparency when it comes to rationales for euthanizing animals. Portland's rank-and-file police union, the Portland Police Association, announced it's taking steps to put two measures on the November ballot that would drastically alter the future of police oversight and accountability in Portland. KBU reporters Sam Bowman and Jasmine have more. Two lawyers affiliated with the Portland Police Union have submitted an initiative petition for the November ballot that proposes a drastic overhaul of the city charter language that defines and empowers a new community-led police oversight board. In the 2020 general election, 82% of Portland voters passed Measure 26-217, which amended the city charter to require the creation of an independent police oversight and accountability board. Major pieces of this required board were that it have the power to subpoena police officers, that it be able to discipline officers, that it review the vast majority of complaints against the police, that it have no members who are current or former police, and that it have a budget pegged at 5% of the police bureau budget to ensure that its funding was independent of changing political winds. The All-Volunteer Police Accountability Commission, or PAC, worked for over two years to create a detailed proposal for the new system. The city attorney then countered this late last year with a drastically scaled-back proposal that arguably still remained within the letter of the 2020 charter changes. Both proposals would be abandoned if voters approved the new PPA initiative. The changes that would make to the city charter would eliminate or replace most of what made the 2020 measure a uniquely powerful concept for police oversight. The four-page petition was submitted last week by Will Aitchison and Anil Correa and includes charter changes that would add new responsibilities for the board to issue annual reports on police officer recruitment, retention, and training. The new language completely removes the prohibition on former police officers serving on the board or staffing the office. It removes the ability of the board to compel officer testimony, impose discipline, make recommendations on policy and procedure changes, and it also limits the jurisdictional scope of complaint investigations in ways that are not entirely clear to non-lawyers. Also striking in the petition language is the removal of the community-centered focus and the priority on continued transparency and access to information. The original charter language called for the board to make provisions to ensure that board membership included representation from diverse communities, quote, particularly those who have lived experience with systemic racism and those who have experienced mental illness, addiction, or alcoholism, end quote. In the proposed language from the PPA lawyers, that entire diversity statement has been replaced with, quote, various professional backgrounds and from different geographic areas within the city, end quote. 
Another big sticking point at contentious city council sessions related to the work of the PAC and their proposed code package was the charter language pegging a budget for the new board at 5% of the annual police budget. Not surprisingly, that budget floor has been removed from the HSN version, which would put the board's budget at the council's discretion. This is not the first time the Portland Police Association has collected signatures to fight against public oversight of police. Will Aitchison was also the PPA's lawyer back in 1982 when the city created its first official body dedicated to police oversight, the Police Internal Investigations Auditing Committee. Despite the new committee having a very limited scope and minimal public involvement, the PPA put a measure on the ballot to eliminate it. Though that measure failed, the committee itself was widely seen as ineffective and was replaced by the current independent police review system in 2001. If the language in the initiative petition is adopted as is, the community would have less insight and input into police accountability than it has had since at least the 1990s. The backers of this initiative petition will need to collect over 40,000 signatures by July 5th at which point the initiative will be referred to Portland City Council. The council can then vote to refer the measure to the ballot, put a competing measure on the ballot, or adopt the measure as is. We reached out to the Portland Police Association attorneys for comment on this story, but have not yet heard back. For KBOO Evening News, I'm Sam Bowman. And I'm Jasmine. The Navajo Nation releases a proposed water claims settlement to the other parties of the Little Colorado River. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Navajo Nation has publicly released a proposed agreement to settle water rights claims in Arizona. The proposed settlement is close to completion with the U.S., Arizona, the Hopi Tribe, the San Juan Southern Paiute Tribe, and parties to the Little Colorado River. Claims also include the Colorado River Upper Basin, the Colorado River Lower Basin, the Gila River Basin, and groundwater. The Navajo Nation held a public education forum Wednesday night on the radio, which was also streamed online. Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch says the tribe's providing advanced information about the proposed settlement to Navajo people in the interest of transparency. The nation has tried to settle its Arizona water rights in various different capacities in the past for about three decades. And we now are excited to share with you that we're on the verge of a final settlement for the nation's comprehensive water rights in the state of Arizona. In the recent past, in particular, a lot of the discussion has focused on the Little Colorado River Basin. We haven't had as much discussion about the upper basin, full extent of the lower basin, or the Gila River Basin water rights of the nation. We are still in, in negotiations. Navajo officials say once the settlement is final, which is expected in early March, legislation will be introduced to the Navajo Nation Council for approval. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren says the nation's primary objective is to affirm and quantify their rights to water in Arizona and secure funding to build much-needed water delivery infrastructure on the Navajo Nation. More than a dozen meetings are planned to be held in Arizona Navajo communities in the next few weeks to discuss the proposed settlement. A Minnesota organization is getting a baby food product out to consumers. The ingredients and packaging are designed to appeal to parents of indigenous babies. Mike Moen reports. 
The Indigenous Peoples Task Force is trying to hit reset on the unhealthy diet European colonizers forced upon Native American populations. The first jars of Indigenous baby food were released in 2023, providing families with a wholesome and sustainable alternative to commercial products. The group's executive director Sharon Day says they want these youngsters to start their lives with a diet more consistent with what their tribal ancestors consumed. The wild rice, the blueberries, these are all ingredients and produce from North America, indigenous to this land, the same way we are. The ingredients are grown locally using heirloom seeds and methods that forego the extractive approach of industrial agriculture. The IPTF markets these products using glass jars featuring an indigenous baby on the label, because Day says that helps with native representation in retail sales, while also avoiding plastic pouches that might expose the child to toxic chemicals. While some of these strategies might boost production expenses, Day says it's worth it to help reverse long-standing chronic health issues within native communities. The diseases that we have that we're dying from are diabetes, stroke, and degenerative heart disease. And these are all caused by our diet. In distributing the first jars of Indigenous Baby, the IPTF prioritized community health clinics and food shelves in Minnesota and elsewhere. Project officials add that grocers are asking when they can stock these products, which may start appearing on regular store shelves as production capacity increases. That was Mike Moen with original reporting from Jay Gabler for Arts Midwest. Scott George and the Osage Singers will perform at the Oscars with Jage, a song for my people, from the film Killers of the Flower Moon. The song is nominated for an Oscar. The award ceremony will take place on Sunday, March 10th, airing on ABC. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. You are listening to the KBOO Evening News for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Ken Jones, Michelle Coppola, Mel Gertov, Sam Bowman, Jasmine, and Birdie. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Eric Tegadoff, Antonia Gonzalez, Catherine Carley, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Althea Billings. All of our KBOO programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Stay tuned now for the Global Citizen International Digest. Welcome to the Global Citizen International Digest with Portland State Professor Emeritus Mel Gertov. It's critical commentary on foreign affairs from a human interest perspective. The opinions expressed in the following segment are those of the speaker. Hello everyone and welcome to the Global Citizen International Digest. 
I'm Mel Gertov, and I'll be reporting and commenting on the most important and sometimes the most neglected international news of the past week or so. Here are some of the news items I'll be covering. The changing face of U.S.-China trade and investment. Why sanctions sometimes don't work. And a ceasefire in Israel finds the U.S. still behind the eight ball. First, the changing face of U.S.-China trade and investment. The biggest source of U.S. imports is not China. Over the last 20 years, China has been the biggest source of U.S. imports, but today 